come this morning on this first Sunday of the new year. And man, I don't think there's any better place for you to be this morning than in a place where really it doesn't matter if we were in this building or we've been in cafeterias, we've been in tool sheds, but wherever God's people are gathered, there God is. And there's no better thing for us to do together than to just bask in the presence of God this morning and all our failures and all our weaknesses and all our mistakes and everything that we did wrong in 2019, God is still waiting for you in 2020. He's waiting for us. He's waiting for us to step into what he has for us. He's waiting for us to step into the purpose that every single one of us has this morning. And that's to be heralds of who God is, to enjoy him, to share him, to live in him, Allow him to live in us and live out from us in everything that we do. Church, this morning we're going to pick back up in a series we started before uh, the Advent season. And, and I think this where we're going to be at this morning in the book of James in our study called Working from Victory is, is a great place for us to start 2020 with. Because I think it's one of the easiest pitfalls for us as Christians or just as individuals to fall into. And it's something that James laid the groundwork for earlier in the book. And here he's going to expound on it a little more. And I just want to read this verse to you. And then we're going to pray and ask God to just speak to us in his text. Challenge us in this study this morning. If you have your Bible, you can turn it to James chapter 4. And I'm going to read and then we'll pray. James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Starting in verse 11, it says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Let's pray together this morning. Father God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you this morning that the, the very thing we gather around is not my opinions. God, it is not a, a means of entertainment. God, it is not uh, some, Lord, thing that can just be tossed to the side or thrown away. But it's the revealed word of God that shows us who you are, that shows us your intentions for us. God is not an exclusive thing, but an inclusive opportunity that you've invited us in. God, as all of us are working in some way, shape, or form, working out our lives, working out our desires, working out our beliefs. Father, I pray that our perspective in the work that we do, and specifically this morning, as we talk about how we speak of others in the light or in the dark, God, that it would be done from this place of victory that we have in you that fills us with a joy that fills us with a passion, that fills us with, with, with feelings and, and, and direction and purpose that only you can provide for us. Father, speak to us through your word tonight in a mighty, this morning in a mighty way, Father God. We love you, thank you, and praise you in Jesus' holy name. Amen. So we're in week 13 of this series through the book of James. James being one of the most practical looks at how the Christian life is lived. 
James set forth to lay before a group of what the beginning of James said were scattered believers, believers who were, who were scattered, who they weren't together, who they were uh, in different areas of the world, maybe just in distance, or maybe they were in persecution, different things like that. James is writing to them to give them encouragement and instruction, and most of all, letting them know that God has not forgotten about you, that God still has intentions for you, and that even though there are things around you that may be drawing you into emptier, more uh, emptier things or, or drawing you into difficulties, he's telling them through this entire book that there is a work, there is a life that you live that comes from a victory. And that's a victory that we've celebrated in the birth and the death of Jesus Christ for us on the cross, bearing our sin and shame so that we don't have to live or walk in sin or shame anymore. And it's from that victory that every work that we do should come from. Everything that we do. And he encourages us that, to have that and to live by that. And so James is laying the groundwork for these practical ways to live. You know, we've talked about so much, and I'm not going to recap. And I pray that if maybe if you haven't heard uh, up to this point, that you go to our podcast, Spotify, Apple, whatever you listen to podcasts on, and it'll be there and, and, and keep up and kind of catch up with where we are. Um, but this morning, we're going to be in James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, where James begins to kind of speak. And then kind of the overarching thing from this whole series has been our perspective determines our progress and how we see things determines how we walk through those things, how we see people, how we see the Lord, how we see our lives, how we see our purpose determines how we move through this life that we will we are inevitably moving through, that we have to make decisions, we have to make choices, we have to do things. And, and it's dependent. The way we move through, the, through those things is dependent on how we have a perspective on the most important things in our life or what is the most important things in our life. And so James is, is continuing on as he's talking about how a Christian lives their life or kind of bringing us to, up to speed on the standard of living that he's called us to. And this is not a, a list of rules. This is not do's and don'ts that if you don't do this, then you're a failure. If you don't do this, then you're not a Christian. That's not what he's saying. And then anything, any command that God lays before us in his word is to bring us into this everlasting, this abundant life that he's inviting us into. He's telling us that your best life today is by walking in the commands, walking down the path that the Lord has lit for us. And so this morning he tells us that it's in how we speak about people, rather that speaking about them in public or in private. And what we'll see this morning is how those things affect us and affect the people around us, whether they're true or false, whether they're in private or public. And so kind of the idea, if I had to bring it all together in one sentence, I don't have it on the screen this morning, but I just want to communicate this to you. If I could sum up everything that we say this morning, I'd want it to be this, that we would let our words build in the light and not destroy in the dark. That we would let the things that we say build in the light and not destroy in the dark. And so two things determine how we do that. Two things will determine how we do that this morning. And James is very clear on how he lays this out and he wants to communicate this to us. The first thing this morning, church, that we could see is how we see people. How we see people will determine how we talk about people, how we deal with people. In verse 11, we see this laid out. He says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. So there's three words that he says in that verse that I think are very intentional that he wants us to see. 
He says the word brothers. You know, and a lot of times the, the masculine noun or pronouns are used to describe men and women. Okay, so he's speaking to men and women when he says this. He says, talking about this fellowship, this brotherhood of, of Christian believers. And, uh, and he says, he's bringing attention to their relational and spiritual connection. He says, do not speak evil against your brothers. And then he continuously says this word because he wants them to understand that as Christians, we are unified in a family of God, that we are brought together by something bigger than ourselves, bigger than our race, bigger than our opinions, bigger than our, our, our abilities, bigger than, than our, our failures, our accomplishments. He says we are unified by one thing, and that's by Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit that dwells within us, that the Spirit of God unifies us. And that is God's intention. That is what he wants from us. He is telling Christians how they should behave with each other and, 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 and talk about each other and deal with each other. And the thing that we know is that he's not only, and to be able to see this entire text through these lenses, that he's not only speaking of Christians, though, too, that we need to understand this, that he's not only speaking of Christians, even though as Christians, this should be the easiest thing for us. But he's not only speaking of the way that we speak about or speak to Christians, because the very last word of verse 12, he also says a different word, and he says the word neighbors. The word brother specifically communicates a connection, specifically communicates a group of people connected together by something. But then he also brings in another word at the end of it where he says neighbors, and the neighbor to you and me is not someone who is connected to us by anything specific. It is not someone who is like us. It is not someone who believes like us. It is not someone who, who thinks like us or acts like us or talks like us. But that is a more general encompassing group of people. And so he's not only speaking of how we speak about our two brothers, but it's also our neighbors. And we know that the greatest commandment is to love our neighbors as ourselves. And so God is bringing this together of how we view people, of how we view our brothers and sisters in the faith, and also how we view our neighbors, those who maybe are outside of the faith, who maybe haven't believed, who maybe are still struggling through that process of understanding who Jesus is or putting their trust and faith in him. And this perspective Jesus commands is, is something that he says, and it's also something supported by the biblical narrative. All throughout the Bible, it speaks of viewing people in this relational connection, in this respect. Because even in the very beginning of the Bible, what does it say that God created us in? It says he created us in his image. Before we had done a single thing, God chose to create us in, in his image. How we are different than, say, animals or plants or, 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 or any other material as we have reason, we have form, we have the ability for love and compassion, all these things. God has created us differently in his image. Now, through the fall, when sin came into the world, it did not change the fact that Adam and Eve were created in God's image. Our sin today does not determine the fact or change the fact that we were created in God's image. The person who believes indifferently than you is no less created in God's image than you are. Now, by our sin, we have, we have changed how that functions within us over time. We may be further from that image in some way, shape, or form, but God's intention for us is to mold us back into that perfect image that he created us to be. And every single one of us, 
is created in that image. And the Bible speaks of that constantly and it brings us to this idea of this relational connection. Psalm 50 verse 20 says, you spit, sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. And so this isn't speaking of obviously a physical mother or a physical son. He's speaking in these spiritual terms that as brothers, as this family of God, as Christians, we are connected in a spiritual sense. And then he also brings it to the other word, to neighbors in Psalms 1015. He says, whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. This is God speaking. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. And so he's seeking not only of brothers and sisters of the faith, but he's also speaking of our neighbor, those who aren't connected to us, so those who aren't our brothers and sisters in the faith. He says that you will, you will be bringing punishment on ourselves if we even think that we have the right to sit and slander, speak evil, or speak, uh, speak against a brother or sister or a neighbor, someone outside of that family of God. And then speaking back to the, to the family of God in 1 John 4.20, says, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. So he tells us as Christians, there's absolutely no way that the love of God can dwell in us if we hate someone of the family of God. You know, because a brotherhood, this, this family doesn't defame each other. It protects each other. You know, because this is one of the easiest things that we can do, right? We sit and we talk about people. Uh, we, we criticize those people. We nitpick those people. And we don't feel like we're affecting them because they're not hearing it. And if we're honest with ourselves, we've all fallen into this in one way, shape, or form. Whether that's with friends, family, people in church. Maybe you've done it to your spouse. Maybe not uh, you know, to a friend or even to, in your own thoughts, your own, in, in the way that you speak and think of her or him. You know, that, that there is so much that we think that we're not doing. But the reality is when we're talking in this way, when we're speaking in the dark, we're stoking the fires of, of this idea, the, the, uh, this uh, mindset at which we see people. And what James is trying to do is bring us back to this idea of understanding who people are. That our desire for people should be good. For every single person, we should want redemption. For every single person, we should want restoration. We should want good for people. We should want to see people do well, but too often we like to talk about, if we're honest, we like to talk about the wrongs that people are doing or the wrongs that they have done because in reality it's coming from this place of pride that elevates ourselves to make me feel better. Well, I'm, I'm not failing as much as they're failing, so I'm okay. There's so much flaw in that. Because not only are we using them as a stepping stone to elevate ourselves, but we're, we're demolishing, we're destroying the image of God that they are created to be in our own mind and in the way that we're communicating to other people. If we're having those conversations about people in that way, then we're doing that uh, in, in, in a negative light and creating this culture of how we view people. You know, because the reality is we should want even the worst of us, even for those who have disappointed us, even for those who have wronged us to do well, to do good, to be redeemed. Because God sought that for us, right? And all our failures and all our mistakes... God's intention for us was restoration and redemption. Because God sees us and speaks of us in this, this idea of a family. And, and if, you have your, if you want to flip to Matthew 18, you can. If not, I'm just going to read it off to us to see how God views us and how important His people are to Him and how we treat His people and how we treat each other. 
Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, and I'll just begin reading. He said, At this time the disciples came to Jesus, saying, Who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like, like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then he continues this illustration talking about us as children. This childlike faith, this weakness, this innocence, this, this ignorance almost. And he says in verse 5, whoever receives one, talking about how we treat each other, whoever receives one such child. And so he's not talking about a physical child, but he's talking about us as people, as children of God with a childlike faith. He says, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. He says, how we treat other believers, how we treat other people is in a sense how we are treating the very body of Christ. He says that if you have received one such child in my name, you have received, you receive me. In verse six, but whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me. Okay, so he's talking about believers, adult believers. Remember, he's using an illustration. Whoever believes of uh, causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. Or another way, some, uh, some say it, you know, uh, to cause one to, uh, to, to sin or to offend someone, to offend him. It says this, it says, It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. I mean, he, here Matthew writing this and, and commuting this, communicating this from the Lord, he's saying it is better that we would be dead than to offend or cause to sin another brother or sister. Because that's how greatly the Lord desires for us to see people as who they truly are. To stop feeling like we have any right to push someone off to the side or to step on top of someone or to ele ever elevate ourselves above someone because we haven't made the mistake or we haven't fallen into that very thing that maybe they've fallen into. He tells us that we are all those children and that our calling as people of God is to receive one such child and to receive each other. To receive each other is to receive Christ. And so he continues on and he tells us that it would be better to be sunk to the bottom of the ocean than to cause a believer to sin or to offend them or to hurt them in a malicious way. How we treat another believer is how we treat Christ. Because the reality is this, is that the one who, the ones who love God, love the ones God loves. The ones who love God love the ones God loves. And listen, we're not all that lovable. I'm not always that lovable. But God loves me. We individually are not always that lovable, but God encourages and commands us to love each other. Now, loving each other doesn't mean we're always happy with each other. But he calls us to love each other. And so not only... It, is it important how we see each other? Going back to James chapter 4. Not only is it important how we see each other. Seeing each other, not only, not whether family of God or not family of God, first understanding that we are all made in the image of God. And then the second thing, if we are of the family of God, then us, above all, should be a, a reflection, should be an image of unity. 
that, that, that does not sit in corners and, and, and criticize and condemn each other. And so moving into the second thing, you know, first, how we see people. But the second perspective that is important is how we see our responsibility with others. How we see our responsibility. He says there in verse 11 to do not speak evil against one another. And so this word, this phrase, uh, speak evil, means backbiting, okay, or slander. You know, and, and, and really this word not only communicates obviously the false things, the lies that maybe we can speak about someone to destroy their character or destroy their witness or to destroy their, their, their careers or, or the, to destroy people. Not only is it, is it communicating lies, but it also can be saying truth. That it's not just false things, but it's also saying maybe things that are true, but with ill intent or in the wrong context, in the wrong way. And we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit as we move down. But what we need to understand what this isn't saying. When it says to not speak evil, it's talking about slander, backbiting, speaking, criticizing people from corners or, or, or in the dark. But what it isn't saying is things that he has called us to do, that the Bible has encouraged us to do. One of those things is to call out false prophets, wolves in sheep's clothing, uh, people that are causing harm to the body of God. The Bible has told us to do that. So it is not saying that we don't do things or say things in a loving, in a uh, intentional way. It is not saying that. And it's also not saying that we should not confront sin that has other believers trapped in bondage. But the Bible does tell us how to do it. There is a specific way that God has called us to do that even. He says in Matthew 18, 15, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him. If your brother sins against you, if there is conflict, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. And if he listens to you, you have gained a brother. There is communication that is intentional. That in the body of Christ, as people, that he has not called us to, to ignore sin that has people entangled, but he calls us to a very specific way of how to deal with it. That whether it's sin that they're trapped in or a conflict at which you've been offended by, what does he say? He says, go and tell him, between you and him, intentional, personal interactions, not speaking in the dark. Not complaining and, and, and casting judgment from the sidelines. First Thessalonians 5.14 says, Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. There is none of those things we can do from the darkness. There is none of those things we can do speaking to someone else about it in private. He tells us that our intentions should be to admonish, to encourage, to help, to be patient. The verse before, to go to that individual. Galatians 6, 1, he says, If anyone is called in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch over yourself, lest you to be tempted. So he says that there is a way in which we deal with people in our lives or in our church that are caught in sin. He says, go to them personally. Don't speak about them. Don't, don't talk about, and this is where the truth or the not truth doesn't matter. That it doesn't matter if the things that we're saying in private about someone are true or not true. Because the things we say in private about someone in a criticizing way without the intention on going to them and trying to make it better, it does no one any good and it just cultivates an attitude of condemnation. 
It cultivates an attitude that is not seeking restoration because restoration does not happen through private conversations in the corner about other people. That it doesn't mean that me and my wife don't sit and we don't speak and and, and intentionally may pray about a sin that maybe someone is caught up in. Because sin is obvious. We know it within ourselves or within people around us that are caught in sin, that are just ensnared in this, this, this bondage in their life. And it doesn't mean that we don't have conversation about it. But that conversation has to have intentions. And those intentions should be the restoration and the good work of those people. That never should a Christian sit and speak about someone in a negative, fly in a way where we're talking about their sin in a lot. I mean, did you hear about what they're doing? Did you hear about what they did? Did you hear about what they said? Do you hear about the things that they're doing? That's, that's, that's terrible. I mean, what good is that doing anybody? Just to kind of stir up the, 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 the sin that someone else is struggling with. You know, that's why Jesus would say, man, pull the log out of your own eye. Recognize that you're fallen and broken. And just because your sin looks differently than theirs doesn't mean that you are elevated to the place where you're allowed to look and to cast a verdict on them. Because God's intention for us is restoration. Why should our intention not be redemption and restoration? As a Christian, that should be always what we want. Whether they're of the brotherhood of faith or not, we should want to see good for them. We want to see God's work in their life. We want to see those things happen for them. And so for us, let's not talk to others about people's faults. Let's talk to them about their faults. Go to individuals. You have a problem with somebody, our responsibility, our biblical command is to go to that individual. That's the problem I've, I've learned and I've experienced in churches is when we have issue, when we have problems with, or we have doubts, we have concerns. Too often we pull back to corners or we pull into other people in the church and we, we complain or we, we criticize or we, we, we condemn others in our private conversations with no intentions to ever go into that individual. You know, I've had people come to me at times and say certain things about certain individuals and I say, well, what? Have you gone to them or have you had a conversation with them or is it okay if I mention that 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 I've uh, that you've told me this and that we can begin to have a a dialogue through this to work through it? No, 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 no. I I don't want them to know that I think this or say that uh, or I've said this or that I want this to happen. And in my mind, I'm thinking, well, I'm not doing anything about it because when we continue to cultivate these ideas of back doors and secrets and and we don't want to face things, we don't want to face conflict. It does no one any good. It doesn't do the individual that maybe needs to hear what you have to say any good. And it doesn't do you any good in affecting and understanding your responsibility as a believer to step into lives, wanting to see restoration, wanting to have those individual conversations. Because listen, it is easy and it is enjoyable to talk about people in the dark or in private, right? I mean, it's easy. We can just begin to criticize and just begin to kind of mercilessly analyze people's lives the things they're doing wrong, the places they fail, without ever really acknowledging our own failures or faults. It's easy. And our, and our sinful nature, our flesh, enjoys it. Because it, it, it's really from a place of pride that reminds me that I'm not as bad as them in the moment. But, in being honest, it is hard to talk. You know, it is hard to have awkward conversations with people you're having conflict with. It's hard to have to confront a brother or sister in Christ who is, who is in bondage of sin. 
Because you never know how they're going to respond. You never know how they're going to react to it. It may be painful, but what it does is it creates these opportunities. And most 90% of the time, in, in, in my experience, when I've opened up these dialogues, began to have these conversations, what it does is it allows them space to talk through it. It allows them space to begin to verbalize these things that maybe they're struggling with or these things that they've done to hurt us. And we're talking through these things and maybe they begin to see it. But it also puts us in a humble place to hear their story. Because the thing is, church, we, most of the time, 80 to 90% of the time, we really have no clue what's going on in someone's life. We have no clue the reason they chose to do those things, idiotic or not, sinful or not. We're all driven and motivated by the circumstances and situations around us. And our job as Christians is to step into those spaces with humility and to be that source of communication, to be patient with them, to be seeking better for them and to be be seeking good for them, to have intentions, that we would let our speech always be of grace, speaking with intent to build Titus 1.13 says this, says, The testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Listen, the Bible never tells us not to be intentional, not to be direct, not to be focused on what we're trying to accomplish. But he continues in this, that they may be sound in faith, that there's intentions, that we want to lean into other people's lives. And we want to rebuke in other places in the Bible would say rebuke in love. And so this doesn't give us the right to just start just barreling into people with telling them every single thing that they've done wrong. Because the reality is most of us, we already know what we're doing wrong before a single person spoke what we're doing wrong to us. What people need from us as believers, especially, is to be leaning into their lives with the grace and mercy God showed to us the same way God leaned into my despicable, sinful life and began a process of restoration and redemption in my life. That from day one of my salvation, the moment I put my faith in the Lord, didn't look much different than the day before when I wasn't. Thank God for his patience with me to bring me through my ignorance. Thank God for his patience with me to bring me through my sin and my selfishness. God allows that space for us, and he encourages to allow that space for others. 1 Corinthians 14, 26, let all things be done for the building up. Let everything we do, everything we say, every interaction we have with each other as believers, and even our neighbors. Remember, we're even speaking of people outside of the family of God. He says, let us, everything we do, be done for the building up. That it should never be our intention, our desire to see people destroyed by our words. You know, because the things we say, the conversations we have, they can be cancerous. When the words that we say are pointed at destruction and not edification or lifting up, they can bring destruction on people. And that is not our responsibility. It is not our responsibility, as we'll see further on, to judge. It is not, and when we say judge, that is different than discernment. We are called to be discerning. We are called to think through things. We are called to listen to someone speak or to tell us of a belief system and think, well, does that line up with what God's called me to? So don't think that just because we're called to patience, just because we're called to graceful love and mercy, that that means we compromise what we believe. That is not what God is telling us to do. But it's through our intentions and it's through not functioning in this evil speaking that he's called as the slander, the backbiting, the criticism. He's 
calling us away from that. Because another word that is used throughout the Bible, you know, the, there are different words used to communicate different things in English, whether it's in Hebrew or Greek. And, and, and one of the words used, another word used to communicate slander, to re- communicate accusations, to communicate backbiting, to communicate someone who is casting out, someone who is making charges that bring down or destroy, is this word that is also used for another word. And I think you'll understand which word. But it's the word, Greek word, diabolos. It is used, that word is used to communicate slander, to communicate destruction, to communicate accusations. But that word diabolos is also used to describe the enemy. It's also used to describe the, the devil himself. That is the same word used to describe the very opposition to God. Is evil speaking, is slander, is backbiting, is, is these things that we do in the dark that we think are so innocent because they're just our words. And even if they're true, if they're done without the intention of restoration and completion and redemption, then they're evil, he says. They're in equality with the devil. They're in equality with the very essence of evil if they are not intentioned for good work for people. Proverbs 11.9 says, With his mouth the godless man would destroy his neighbor. You know, because this is how the enemy used his words. In Genesis, in the very beginning, what did he do? He used his words to bring sin into the world. He said, did God really say that? You know, what is God keeping from you? What is God hiding from you? That's what the devil used with Adam and Eve to to, to bring them into sin. He used his words. Church, our words are one of the strongest weapons, our tools that we have. Ephesians 4, 26 through 27, it says, Be angry and do not sin and give no opportunity to the devil. You know, and a lot of times we speak from anger. We speak from these places that, uh, that through being affected, through emotions. And he tells us that it's okay to, be, to, to, to have feelings against something, but to not sin, to not allow our anger to tr- turn into words or to turn into actions because it brings opportunity for the devil. And it's through that evil that the enemy works. And he, and he continues on in verse 12, and he says that there is only one lawgiver and judge. This instruction for us is an encouragement Or this is an encouragement and an an instruction for us that there is only one. That it is not our responsibility to sit on thrones, to sit down in in a place of a judge, to send down verdicts on people. We have to know our place in dealing with others and our responsibility to our brothers. Proverbs 10, 18 says, The one who conceals hatred has lying lips, and whoever utters slander is a fool. Proverbs 10, 19, the next verse says this, says, when words are many, listen, when words are many, transgression is not lacking. But whoever restrains his lips is prudent. And this word prudent means acting with and showing care. You know, because we are such a loose-lipped people. It's so easy to just allow our words to fly out of our mouth and we won't think about them. But he tells us the more words we say, the more opportunity for sin. But he says when we strain our lips, when we consider the things that we say, when we're intentional about the things that we say, that it is a characteristic of acting with and showing care for someone. 
And so he tells us, he's speaking, he says that we are not to be those judges. There is only one judge. The moment we begin to judge, sending down verdicts through our criticism and merciless evaluation, we've assumed our position is more innocent than others, and we're more deserving of a seat of equality with God. But the reality is, it is impossible for us to judge as God judges. Because we bring so much selfishness into the verdict, right? We, I mean, it, it would be like a judge sitting on a, on, on, uh, in his place, on his platform, and, and casting down judgment on a thief, and then the thief looking up at the judge and saying, but you drove the getaway car. What right do you have? Church, any time we send down a verdict on someone, coming with it is selfishness. Coming with it is pride. We can't separate ourselves from our flesh. It'll always come from a place of self-exaltation, rejecting our own submission under the law by, by assuming we have any right to give out a verdict. Does that mean that we don't call out sin where there's sin in a loving, gentle way with, a, with intentions on restoration? Absolutely. The Bible instructs us to do that. Do we call out and, and, and confront uh, wolves in sheep's clothing with intentions on dividing and destroying the church? Absolutely, the Bible encourages us to do that. But the broken and the bonded around us in sin, whether it's within the church or outside of the church, that need redemption, that need reconciliation, what is our responsibility in that? It is not to be their judge. Verse 12, he says, He, this one, who is able to save and to destroy. And there's a lot that we can think of with that. Thank God that he is the one judge. His intentions are to save. His intentions are restoration and redemption. And that he will not only destroy sin itself, but he will also destroy the effects of sin in our lives. And only he can do that. Only God, only the almighty judge can save us. And only the almighty judge can destroy sin in its tracks, can destroy the effects of death, can destroy the effects of the enemy's draw in our lives. That's the judge I want seated at my trial. That we would not be each other's judge, that we would allow the Lord Jesus to be the judge on our lives because he is a good judge. Now, does he judge sin harshly? Absolutely, he does. The Bible tells us the wages of sin is death. But when we put our faith in Jesus, the righteous judge, the one who has stood in our place, the one who takes has taken our sin debt, who has taken the original verdict of guilty on our behalf for us to be able to stand and be deemed as not guilty. Not because of our own good doings, but because Jesus has done good on our behalf. And so why does this matter this morning? Because destructive talk in private is just as damaging and damning as public. There's nothing that we say in private that is as innocent or as non-destructive as even it is in public. That we would not be those people. We would not be those, those, those Christians that sit in corners and criticize and condemn and judge each other. That our intentions for each other would always be to see the best for each other. Even in our sin that we would be leaning in and being intentional, being purposeful with each other. Psalms 140, verse 11, he says, Let not the slanderer be established in the land. 
Let evil hunt down the violent man speedily. Because he says, let not the slanderer be established. If we live our lives as gossipers, as slanderers, as malicious talkers or speakers, not only will we not ever find, he says, not be established in the land, not find a footing in our own lives, but he says, let the evil hunt down the violent man. Let the evil hunt the evil. Church, the reality is the slanderer finds, the slander finds slanderers. Accusations find accusers. Backbiting finds backbiters. If we live our lives by this standard of slander and gossip, we will always be living on the run, believing everyone else is slandering or backbiting us. If we are living that way, we will always live within that light. And that is a miserable place to live, right? To live as if people are constantly talking about the bad, constantly critiquing me, constantly evaluating me. Not that I shouldn't be doing that a little bit on my own and allow my life to be lived by the standard God's laid before me. But the beautiful thing, and David would even say this. He'd say, I would rather fall to the hands of a just God than to the hands of people because people are merciless. People are not just. And this talk, this gossip, allows us to live on the run. When you are talking negatively about others, you live in fear that they are doing it to you. Let's not live in that fear by not speaking that in, 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 in dark spaces, not criticizing people from a distance, but being intentional about leaning into their lives. And if we see something in their life, taking the time to show them that I care about you so much that I'm going to push through this awkward moment of saying, hey, look, I have a perspective on something that you're dealing with that I believe has you in bondage, and I want to help you with it. You know, because, uh, you know, sometimes our perspective is, is, is more clear than others. You know, if there's a wasp on my head about to sting me, someone standing in front of me is going to see that better than I do, right? If there is a, an avalanche falling behind me, the person standing with me is going to have a better perspective on what direction it's coming from or how it's going to affect me better than maybe I do. It is unbelievably valuable and unbelievably important and necessary that we are looking into and at each other's lives, looking at the way that sin could potentially or is affecting us. Let's be a help, though. Because when we are acting strictly as judge for each other, we have no intentions on helping. We're just sending down verdicts based off of performance. And this comes from a place of pride, self-exaltation, and selfish ambition. And so how do we fight against this fleshly impulse. The first thing, church, we have to do is submit to God's authoritative word by actively loving others with our words. The way that we speak, the way that we act in public, and even more so in private. Please don't think that even though their ears can't hear it, that it's not negatively affecting them. Because it is negatively affecting them because it's molding the way that you view them and how you'll treat them moving forward. Because it's instead of stoking the fires of refreshing... It's dampening your spirit and contributing to how you will treat and affect them. And that we would evaluate what we're saying. Is it from a place of criticism or is it a place of concern? And do I intend on going to them about it? Church, if we have no intentions on confronting someone or helping walk through their sin with them, we have no right to talk about it with someone else. 
And the last thing is to, to submit to God himself. Not only submit to his law of loving others, but to submit to God himself. Placing ourselves under his authority. Keeping our own needs and shortcomings in view enough to be in re- reliance on him. His judgment on, our, on my sin, but his grace offered to me through Christ. I read this quote this week that said, Peace among men is the consequence of peace in men. When we have a peace of God within us, it will lead us to peace with other people. And so maybe you, you, have, you are in a, unable to be at peace with others. Maybe it's because you don't have the peace of God within you. That you're not at peace with the Lord Jesus. You haven't confessed your sin. And the Bible says, whether it's today or tomorrow, He says He's faithful and just to forgive. That if we commit the same sin tomorrow, He says that He's faithful and just to forgive. Because what's within our hearts is what comes out of us. Matthew 15, 18, He says, but what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart and this defiles a person. The things, the way that we speak is a reflection of what's in our heart. And if, it our heart, if our heart is not at peace with the Lord, then it will be impossible for us to ever be at peace, truly be at peace with other people and walk through their struggles and issues with them. So my prayer for us as we finish up this morning is that we would always be a forgiven, justified, spirit-indwelt community of people who love to grow in grace. And that live by this attitude that Tim Keller says in in a book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. He says this and reminds us of this, that the gospel is the only thing where the verdict comes before the performance. That the verdict actually empowers the performance. The gospel is not effective because we've performed well enough to earn it. God has given us the verdict of not guilty. And it's because of that verdict that we perform. To understand what he's done from us drives our performance. Our performance does not drive his acceptance of us. There is nothing I can do that makes him love me any less or love me any more. But it does affect the way that we work. It does affect the way that we live in our lives to understand what he's done for us. To surrender to that and to begin to move forward from that and how we treat others and how we embrace our responsibility and how we see those people. We bow our heads this morning and pray. Father God, I pray this morning, God, I thank you, Lord, that you give us such a beautiful just illustration of your goodness through the grace of your gospel. Father, I know that by nature we recognize the negative and the faultiness of people and ourselves, most, most definitely ourselves. But God, I pray that we would always be reminded that once we have put our faith in you, that the verdict is given. That we are not guilty. That we are forgiven. That we are justified. That we are accepted into your family through the work of Jesus, not through my own work. And it's from that place that we work. It's from that victory that we live. And God, I pray that that would influence the way that we minister to each other as Christians and the way that we interact with our neighbors around us is from this place of generosity because of the generosity that's been shown to us. God, I pray right now, Lord, for myself and for others, Lord, if we've fallen victim to the, to the sin of gossip, to the sin of slander, to the sin of merciless criticism and critiquing, Father God, I pray we would just ask for your forgiveness this morning. God, and we thank you for your forgiveness. And I pray that we move forward as a church family of people, of believers. 
walk into relationships and function in relationships, maybe not always agreeing, maybe not always having this just over uh, abundance of happiness or love for each other, but having a commitment as a family of God to want to see good for each other, want to see restoration and redemption for each other. God, wanting to have the same intentions for others that you have for us. God, that we would not see our responsibility as judges sending down verdicts. But God, that we would remember that we are convicts that received a verdict of grace that we did not deserve or earn because of your son Jesus bearing our penalty for us. That he stood and bore our punishment for us. Father, we love you. God, I pray for humility. God, I pray for forgiveness. God, I pray that you would just lead us into the spaces you'd have us to be as a church. God, let us be a real people who work from a real place of victory from and for a real grace for other people. God, we love you and thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.